Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. You can find our podcasts at YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more sites. This month, Cedar Fort is offering a special 20% discount to all of our podcast listeners or viewers. Go to cedarfort.com and put in the code PODCAST20 to receive your 20% off. We hope you are enjoying hearing from the six different authors that are featured in the Come Follow Me program this year. Each of these authors has a unique perspective based on their experience and studies, and each has so much to offer. This week, we will be hearing from Brian Reedy, who is a former Protestant minister who converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can read about Brian's experience and conversion in his book, Crossing the Divide. Thank you, Linda. And it's great to be back with you as we continue our study of the Old Testament Income Follow Me Made Easier. This morning, we're going to be, well, it's morning here, but we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, chapter 7 through 13, and we're going to be looking at three major sections, the sections covering the plagues, the section covering the Passover, and the prelude of the Exodus. Before we get going, again, I'd like to thank Linda for her wonderful introduction. I'd like to thank uh, my fellow host, uh, Lori Denning, for her very helpful suggestions as I put together this material. And I also want to acknowledge that I did a lot of research. Uh, the research that I did for this podcast came from several sources, one being a, book, a commentary on the book of Exodus by Dr. D.K. Stewart, who is a professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So again, as we look at these, at these texts, we have the plagues, the Passover, and the prelude of the Exodus. And it's actually in chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, that the Lord gives us the reasons for these things. He says in verses 6 through 7, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. So this little, these verses gives us the idea of what's going on here. The Lord wants to deliver Israel. He wants to take them out of Egypt. He wants to redeem them, and he wants them to know that the Lord is their God. And not just them, but the Egyptians as well. So those are the reasons the Lord is doing what he is doing. So let's look at, at uh, Exodus chapter 7, the first few verses here. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine enemies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by my great judge, judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So a few things we need to look at in this text. First of all, in the first verse, Moses is made a god to Pharaoh. That's an interesting choice of words that the Lord uses there, because Pharaoh was regarded as a god to the Egyptians. He was seen as human. He was also seen as divine. He was seen as a god, but he was also seen as an intermediary between humans and the gods. And the Lord says, hold on, Moses, I'm going to make you a god to Pharaoh, not a, a divine being, but a person of authority, a person of power. So Pharaoh is going to have a God placed over him. And this really sets the stage for one of the major underlying themes of the plagues. And we'll look at that when we get more into verse 3. Verse 2, Moses is told that he used to tell Israel that they're going to leave Pharaoh's land. They're going to deliver 
Israel from Pharaoh's land. And it was important for the Israelites to understand that Egypt was not their land. They had a different land. Now, they had been in Egypt for 430 years. Europeans have been in America for 457 years. So think about that in contrast, or as a comparison, rather. Uh, roughly about the same amount of time, the Jews were in Egypt for about the same amount of time as Europeans have been in America. If the Lord were to come to us today and say, hey, I'm going to move you to a different land, we would be like, wait a minute, my, my parents are buried here, my grandparents, you know, we've lived here. And so the Lord wants it to be clear to Israel that Egypt is not their land, it's Pharaoh's land. And then we come to that famous verse, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this verse has caused theologians and, and, and Christians of all stripes to struggle with why would God do this? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? It seems to fly in the face of what we know about God and his justice, and it seems to fly in the face of what we know about our doctrine of agency. Now, of course, most of you are familiar that in the inspired version, the prophet Joseph Smith tra translated this verse a little differently, and he translated it, Pharaoh will harden his own heart. And I think that helps with our understanding of the nature of God and our understanding of agency. But I don't want us to lose the tension that the writer of this verse wanted us to see. And that is that God is completely in control of the situation. The way the writer of Exodus, or the writer of the text that we have is, is shaping these verses is to portray this massive battle that's about to take place. This is going to be Tyson versus Holyfield. This is Ali versus Frazier. The, the rumble in the jungle, the thriller in Manila. This is a heavyweight title bout between two divine beings. But what we're going to see, though, is that this isn't Tyson Holyfield. This is Tyson versus your fifth grade PE teacher. There's no contest. And so the tension that the, the translator of that verse who said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, wants it to be absolutely clear to paint this picture that Pharaoh is such a puny, um, impotent God that the Lord God can, can man manipulate even his very volition. So he's really not much of a God at all. So keep that tension in your mind as we look through this text. And of course, he wants the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. So this isn't just about Israel's knowledge of the Lord, but the Egyptians as well. So then we have a series of 11 signs, which include the 10 plagues. And the next five chapters record the 11 signs that God uses to demonstrate his sovereignty to free Israel from slavery and establish a covenant community. Why 10 plagues? Well, 10 was a number of completion in Israel and Egyptian numerology, but also this. The Egyptians were polytheists and they were pantheists. In other words, they believed that there were many gods and they believed that everything was God. Pantheism, pan, all, theist, God. So the Lord, basically through the plagues, was attacking and doing battle with all these other gods. You know, there was the Nile River, which was considered a god. There were agrarian gods, the gods that looked over uh, the, the, the crops and so forth. And so these 10 plagues, God is doing battle with all of the deities, or most of the deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And so again, this idea of this massive battle between the Lord and the Egyptian deities. So we have our first encounter here with the sign of the rod and the snake. So the Lord goes, speaks to Moses and says, when Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and he shall become a serpent. Or in chapter seven, verse nine. 
Now the rod of Aaron is going to be a major factor in these uh, accounts and these encounters and so forth. The rod of Aaron is going to be seen as a sign, as a symbol, as a conduit for the power of God. Every time Moses enacts one of these miracles, he is uh, using the rod. Every time in the text it said his hands were held high, the rod was in his hands. And so in this case, Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh, they throw down the rod, the rod turns into a snake. The magicians reduplicate that. Their rods turn into snakes. But what they can't control is Aaron's rod swallows theirs. They can't stop that. They could reduplicate the miracle of turning the rod into a snake, but they could not stop Aaron's rod from swallowing their rod. Now, as we look at the plagues, there's some things we need to keep in mind. The plagues begin with minor annoyances. Water turned to blood. Yeah, that sounds pretty gross, but only the fish died and they were still able to get water. And you have a bunch of bugs and insects and so forth. But though these were annoying and probably very difficult circumstances, they did not result in the death of any human beings or cause them any major economic hardships. And for that fact, the Egyptian magicians were also able to duplicate the first two plagues. Now, plagues four, five, and six are much more harmful. The fifth killed off many livestock. The sixth brought serious disease. And then, of course, uh, uh, it continues to get worse from there. The seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues, you have hail, locusts, and darkness. Again, more severe, more devastating to Egyptian economy and so forth. And then finally, you have the... Um, the death of the firstborn child. Some argue, some scholars argue that these uh, plagues were just a simply a result of natural phenomenon. That you know the Nile flooded, some of the red soil from other parts of Egypt got mixed in with the water, along with some bacterial growth, and that turned the water really deep color red, and this killed the fish. And then when the water receded, you had all these frogs, and the frogs died, and you had all the bugs. These were just naturally occurring things. The text doesn't say that, though. The text seems to indicate that these weren't um, naturally occurring phenomenon that occurred over a long period of time, but rather miraculous phenomenon that began at a specific time and ended at a specific time, and that uh, were completely controlled by the Lord. Even the magicians never said, this is just a natural phenomenon. Once it got to the point where they couldn't reduplicate things, they were like, the Lord is involved in this. So we have to understand that these were miraculous events designed by the Lord to glorify himself, to draw others to him, and to redeem and free his children. So the first plague is, or the, it's actually the second sign if you include the, the rod turning into the snake, uh, but the first plague is the water of the Nile turning into blood. Now again, remember the Nile River was a god, so this is a direct assault upon the, one of the gods, Egypt. And the Lord tells Moses, take Aaron's rod and smite the water with Aaron's rod. Again, a major point of view, a major symbol in this idea here. And the water shall be turned to blood. Now, the Hebrew word for blood can be translated blood, as we understand it, but it's also a color, blood red. So we can't say for sure that the Nile River actually turned into animal and human blood or if it was just a dark red, turned into a dark blood red color that was uh, bad enough that it caused the fish to die. We also, it's interesting to note, if you look in verse 19, that both the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone, the water in those things also turned to blood. So it wasn't just the water in the Nile, it was all the water that was turning into blood, and you had, but, but they were still able to dig around the bank and get water that was, was serviceable for them to drink. And the magicians, again, were able to reduplicate this with their enchantments. 
And verse 25 of chapter 7 says, and seven days were fulfilled. And I think this is probably given here to give us an idea of how long the duration of these plagues were. I think we can use this as a text that these plagues lasted about a week, unless the text other, tells us otherwise. Maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little shorter, like the darkness only lasted a few days. But I think this text is indicating that these plagues were probably about a week in length as we go through. Verse or chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And they're going to be everywhere. And of course, Pharaoh refused. So he's, Moses stretched out his staff, and raw frogs came everywhere. And the magicians did so as well, verse 7, and they also brought up frogs. Now, the text indicates that these frogs were spread out everywhere in your home. Now, think about this. The Egyptians didn't sleep on elevated beds like we do. They slept on mats on the floor. So these frogs were in your beds. These frogs were in your, in your dishes, in your cooking utensils. And when you got up in the middle of the night to go use the restroom, you probably stepped on a few of these frogs. They were just everywhere. And it was just gross. And so finally, in chapter 8, verse 8, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. And he says, entreat the Lord. This will be one of, let's see, about four or five different times where Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him. To ask the Lord to get rid of these frogs. And Moses does it. And the plagues go away. So you're asking yourself, why didn't Pharaoh see what's going on? Because Pharaoh had hardened his heart. We all know people who have been confronted with the gospel, who've seen miracles in their lives, and they still refuse to believe. That's part of the agency, and that's part of the plan of what's going on here. So Pharaoh asked Moses to take the frogs away. And he goes, he says, okay, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll let you choose the day. You pick a time when these frogs are going to go away. And so Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And he says, okay, I'm going to pray. And the frogs will depart from you tomorrow. Verse 12 of chapter 8. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs. Moses didn't just give a short, simple prayer. Moses cried out unto the Lord. He probably prayed all night until the morrow, until the frogs began to die. But when Pharaoh saw this, that there was respite, verse 15, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Again, we ask ourselves, why? Think about it, though. Have there been times in your life or a friend's life when you're in a pickle, you're in a really bad situation, and you're like, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I promise I won't ever miss sacrament meeting. I promise I won't ever miss uh, this or that. I promise I'll, whatever calling you want, Lord, I'll do it. And he delivers you, and you don't follow through on your commitment. It's the same principle. So we have the next sign, or the third plague, in which... Uh, the dust of the land turns into lice, according to the KJV. Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice. Now, the actual Hebrew word here refers to a small winged critter, a small winged insect. So these probably weren't the lice that get into your hair. These are probably like gnats, gnats that just kind of flew around. You ever been in a, in a swampy area and just the big old uh, swarm of gnats and you run through it or perhaps sand flies stuff, stuff like that could even mean mosquitoes and they're just everywhere and they're just annoying and we finally get to the point here in verse 18 of chapter 8 the magicians could not bring forth the lice or the gnats and the magician said unto Pharaoh this is the finger of God and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them. So, we're going to go to the fourth play. The Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning, 
and stand before Pharaoh as he comes to the water. Now, this is what he had done when uh, the plague on the Nile was announced. So this is almost kind of a, a humorous scene. Pharaoh gets up, he goes out of his palace, he gets ready to go around the Nile to get some water and maybe take a bath or whatever, and Moses is standing there. And you know, it had to go through his mind, oh no, here we go again. But alas, that's what happened. He says, tell you what, if you do not let my people go, verse 21 of chapter 8, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into the houses and the houses of the Egyptians, verse 22, and I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. So evidently the first three plagues impacted the children of Israel. But now the Lord is going to make a distinguish, uh, is going to distinguish between the children of Israel and between Pharaoh so that they can see that the God of the Israelites is the one that's doing all this, is the one that's in charge. And so the flies come and Pharaoh says, okay, tell you what, verse 25, go ye sacrifice to your God in the land. In other words, you can go and make sacrifices, but you got to stay in Egypt. And Moses says, can't do that. It is not meat so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? Will they not stone us? Israelite Animal sacrifices were abominable to Egyptians. This is certainly true. The Egyptians, as typical pantheists, still made animal sacrifices, even though they identified many of their gods with them. What they detested was anything related to the mountain-dwelling people's habits and preferences, including the raising of sheep and goats. In light of Egyptian animosity towards Israelites, it made little sense to perform openly among Egyptians what was so repugnant to them and merely invited uh, active resentment and attack. So Moses is like, this isn't a good idea. We want to take verse 27, a three days journey. Again, let me quote from Dr. Stewart. The term a three day journey is not to be taken literally. It is an idiom for an official formal foreign visit. A three-day journey can also carry the overtone of far from here or very far away. And so that's what they wanted to do. But Pharaoh's like, I will let you go that you may be sacrificed to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. In other words, pray for me. Get rid of these bugs. And Moses said, I will entreat the Lord, that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Things are getting ready to get turned up a notch. This is Pharaoh's last warning, or one of his last warnings before things get really bad. So Moses went and prayed, and of course, Pharaoh does not relent. So the Lord says to Moses, go unto Pharaoh and tell him, thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go, it will hold them still. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. Now, the word moraine does not refer to a specific disease, but it can refer to any number of diseases um, that contain a high morbidity and a high mortality rate. So with this plague, we have moved from annoyance and discomfort to direct attacks on uh, the Egyptian economy. And so now notice verse 5 of chapter 9. And the Lord appointed a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. Remember with the frogs, 
Moses gave Pharaoh the opportunity to pick a time when the frogs would leave. Now the Lord is saying, and, and, well, and, and Pharaoh chose tomorrow. Now the Lord is saying, I'm going to pick a time. I'm going to pick a time for the plague to hit. And it hit. And there was not one of the, uh, it says, uh, verse six, and the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel did not one. Now, it doesn't mean that every single animal died, because we know there were still some left alive for when the hail comes. What he's saying, all of it, he's saying every different type, some of every different type of animal, some of the donkey, some of the camel, some of the, there was not a single species of livestock spared from this disease. But Pharaoh did not relent and he did not let the people go. So we have the next plague, the sixth plague, the plague of the boils. And the Lord said unto Moses, and unto Aaron, take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it forward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. So this is Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, is this plague. So this is almost a funny scene, too, in my mind. Moses and Aaron are walking along, and they have this, these ashes in their hands from this furnace, and they see Pharaoh, so Moses and Aaron walk up to Pharaoh, and they just throw these ashes in the air, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh and the priests are scratching and itching from these boils. And at this time, the priests tap out. They're like, we're done. It says, verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. And still, they did not hearken. Still, the Lord's heart was hardened to them. And now we come to the seventh plague, the eighth sign, the seventh plague, that of the hail. And that is found in Exodus 9, 12 through 35. And the Lord said unto Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine earth and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. So we have the idea here of the sovereignty of God. We also have, again, the idea that God doesn't just want the Israelites to worship him. He wants everyone to worship him and everyone to be in relationship with him. Verse 16, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thy be my power, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now he gives a warning. He gives people a chance. Things are getting really intense now. So he gives a people a chance to show their faith. Verse 19, send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regardeth not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. And so the Lord instructs Moses. Moses goes out, raises his staff, and a hailstorm. A hailstorm and lightning storm like has never occurred in Egypt before, occurs. Only in verse 26, it says, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. Finally, Pharaoh sends for Moses again and says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. I and my people are wicked. And he didn't really mean it. He just wants this issue to go away. He's like, my bad. You're right. I'm wrong. Entreat the Lord. And there shall be no more thunderings of hail. And I'll let you go. Moses said, okay, as soon as I get outside the city, I will pray and there will be no more hail. Verse 30, but as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not yet fear the Lord God. So the picture is, it's still storming. It's still hailing. It's still lightning. 
And Moses is walking to Pharaoh's house, and he walks back from Pharaoh's house out to where he prays, and he's not struck by a single hailstone. Everybody else gets hit, gets died, people get killed, the crops are getting destroyed, not Moses. Moses walking straight through the storm, does not get hit by a single hailstorm. Or hailstone, I should say. Now, verse 31 tells us that the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was bold. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. But we haven't got to the locust yet. Once again, Pharaoh sees the rain and the hail end, and he refuses to do anything. So the Lord sends another plague, the plague of the locust, number eight we're on now, verses or chapter 10, verses one through 20. And the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I might show these my sights before him, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that he may know how that I am the Lord. Here we have the idea of a very important theme in these texts, and that is the idea of family worship. What the Lord was doing, he wasn't doing just for the children of Israel. He was doing so that they would have a memory of this deliverance. And this memory was to be passed down from generation to generation. As we get further into the Passover celebration, we're going to learn that this wasn't just an individual celebration. This was a corporate celebration. This was a, a community celebration. So the idea of family worship and the idea of household and community worship, very important and very strong in what the Lord is trying to convey here. So he says to Moses, or Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go or there's going to be a bad locust plague. And it's going to be filled. I mean, it's going to be just as bad as the flies. Only it's going to be it's going to be locusts. And Pharaoh's servants at this point are ha had enough too. Uh, verse ten, chapter ten, verse seven. Pharaoh's servants said unto him, "How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let him go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Know thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed?" So Pharaoh says, "Go serve the Lord your God. But who's going with you?" And Moses says, we will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, will we go? For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And Pharaoh says, let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go and your evil ones look to it for evil is before you. Now that verse sounds nothing like what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh is being very sarcastic here. He's saying, if, if I let you and take your families out to worship, the Lord would be with you. God would be with you if that's going to happen, because I know you have evil before you. So your men can go. And that's it. They're driven out. So the locusts come. And they covered the whole face of the earth. And it says in verse 15, and there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. So by now you've had the you've had the cat the plague of the cattle, you've had the hail. That essentially decimated the livestock and it decimated the crops that had been ripe. Now the locusts came in and they decimated all the rest of the crops. So there's not a green thing left. Utter complete devastation of the Egyptian economy. So Moses is called back in before Pharaoh again. Verse 16, I have sinned against you and the Lord your God. Forgive me and get rid of the uh, locusts. Pharaoh mean it? No. He just wanted the problem over with. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind and blew the locusts away. But Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, and he did not let the children of Israel go. So now we have the ninth plague, darkness. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. 
you know, there's two ways to look at this phrase, darkness, which may be, may be felt. Have you ever been in a cave and they turn the lights out and you can almost feel the darkness pressing in against you? There's that idea. But this also might be an idiom of it was so dark that you had to grope around, feel around to know where you were. Remember, they didn't have electricity back then. All they had were these little lamps. So when it got dark, if there was no moon, you couldn't see anything or you could see very little. And this darkness lasted for three days and it caused a, a major panic among the Egyptians. It didn't impact the people of Israel. And think about it, even in our day with electricity, if it was dark for 72 straight hours, a lot of people would be panicked over that. And given what they'd just been through with the locusts and the hail, they needed to get new crops in. Well, without light, there can't be any photosynthesis and the plants aren't going to grow. <clears throat> so Moses, Pharaoh calls Moses, says, tell you what, you can serve, you can take your kids, but leave your flocks. That's not going to work because if they left the flocks, they're going to have to leave people to tend the flocks, plus the animals for sacrifice. And so Moses is like, that's not going to work. We're going to have animals for sacrifice. So they've got to go with us too. And Pharaoh says no once again. And he says in verse 28, and Pharaoh said unto them, get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in the day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. And Moses said, thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face no more. Now, don't let the chapter break through you, because Moses hasn't left Pharaoh's presence yet. While Moses is still in Pharaoh's presence, the Lord speaks to, Pharaoh, to Moses and says, there's going to be one more plague. And he gives some strategy on how to do it. He goes, you have to get ready. You have to go and borrow silver and gold from your neighbors because you're going to be getting out of town quick and you're going to need this. And so what's going to happen is about midnight, I'm going to go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has none like it, nor shall there be any more. And the, skip down to verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So let's look at some verses here, some phrases. In chapter 11, verse 4, the idea of this happening at midnight doesn't necessarily mean it happened at 12 a.m. It means it happened in the darkness. It happened when everyone was asleep, when everyone was the most vulnerable. And you have the idea of the firstborn in the land of Egypt dying. You have the idea of a great cry that is happening. And this kind of rhymes with the way the book of Exodus began. The book of Exodus began with Pharaoh killing the firstborn children, the males of the Israelites. And there was a great wailing because of the slavery. So now it's not the Hebrews that are wailing over slavery. And it's not the Egyptians who are killing the Hebrew children. It's God smiting the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are doing the wailing. Now, let me pause for a minute and address something here. As we think about the idea of the firstborn in the land of Egypt dying, of God killing people, it's very difficult for us to reconcile that with the way we understand God, the God of the New Testament, and the nature of God. And we don't have time, we, really, we aren't even able to deal with all the issues that surround that. We, there's just so many theological ideas and so many questions surrounding that. We just, we can't even begin to touch on it here. But I do want to lay out a principle that might help, at least give us something to hold on to as you process what you think about these ideas of the Lord killing these firstborn children. And that is for us, 
death is a final barrier. There is nothing, once someone dies, we do not continue in a physical relationship with them. We cannot speak to them. We cannot see them. We cannot hear them. We cannot uh, socialize with them. For us, death is that barrier. But death is not a barrier for God. God has the same relationship with these people post-mortality that he does with them in mortality. Death is not a barrier to God in the same way that it is a barrier to us. So that might not be a lot to hold on to, but hopefully that's some, something to think about as we process this idea of God doing these things that don't make sense to us. So then we have this other verse, but among any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue. No one's going to be hurt. We might say like a, you know, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And finally, in time, the event occurs and Pharaoh comes to Moses and tells him to take his people and get out. He called for Moses and Aaron by night. This is chapter 11, verse 31. Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said, and take your flocks and your herds. And now we're going to look at the Passover, beginning in chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now we're in the springtime. For those of you familiar with the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah or New Year occurs usually in the fall, September, October. So why is that celebrated? Is New Year celebrated then when this text says, the springtime should be the beginning of the year. And basic reason is that the Jewish people celebrated both, observed both a liturgical calendar and an agrarian calendar. The agrarian calendar begins in the fall. The liturgical calendar begins in springtime. It's not uncommon to the idea of we have a calendar that goes a year that goes from January to Mar or January to December. But a lot of businesses, their fiscal year goes from October to September. So you have the legal year and then you have a fiscal year. It's the same kind of idea. But what the Lord is trying to impress upon the Jewish people is that this is a new day. This is your independence day. This is the day of your redemption. And so time is starting over for you. He tells them that to commemorate this, you're going to have a feast. And that feast is going to basically be uh, what the 4th of July and Thanksgiving is for us, but rolled up into one. And he's also explaining to them how they're going to be delivered. To speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day, this is verse 3 of chapter 12, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So the tenth day of the month, they're to take a lamb. They're not supposed to slaughter the lamb until the fourteenth day of the month. Why so early? Same reason you don't wait and buy your Thanksgiving turkey the day before Thanksgiving, or at least you shouldn't. Most of us prepare ahead of time. And so that's what the Lord is wanting the Israelites to do. He's wanting them to be prepared. This is an important event. He wants everybody to be able to participate in it. And notice he says they're to get a, a, a lamb for their house. This isn't an individual celebration. This is to be celebrated as a family or as a household or as a neighborhood. As he later says, if your house is too small, invite your neighbors to come over. More than likely, your neighbors are family anyway. So it's an idea of a family celebration. Verse 5 of chapter 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Now, lambs 
were usually born in the springtime, so it would have been very easy for them to find a one-year-old lamb in the springtime. Why without blemish? Because, you know, a, 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 a goat with a notch in his ear, his meat's going to taste just as good as a goat without blemish. Why, why without blemish? I think there's a couple reasons here. Number one, I think the idea that God wants perfection. God wants our very best. Number two, we have the idea that's going to be further developed in, in Exodus and then Leviticus, the idea of the need for an atonement to be made. And only a perfect, something perfect can atone for something imperfect. And of course, you have the idea, I think here, a foreshadowing of the coming Son of God. So they are to keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and they will kill it in the evening, right around twilight. That way there would be enough light to see what, uh, what they were doing and able to make the, the butchering successful. And you will take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house, wherein they shall eat it. And we'll get back to that some more. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So they were to, the idea here is an idea of haste. They are to roast it. That's the quickest way to cook the lamb is by roasting. They are to eat it with unleavened bread. You don't have time for the yeast to raise your bread. you got to eat unleavened bread. And you're to take it with bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Because those were the type of herbs that would have been the easiest vegetables they could have got their hands on during this time of the year. They are not allowed to let anything remain until the morning. Verse 10, no leftovers. Why no leftovers? Two reasons. Number one. We're in a hurry. You don't have time to preserve the meat. Number two, the Lord wants you to trust him for your providence. And then he says, you are to eat it, verse 11, with your loins girded, that your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Normally, when an Israelite from this time period would have eaten dinner, he would have had his, his robes all loose and flowing and he would have taken his shoes off. He would not have had a staff. But instead, he's told to, to tuck his robes in so he can run and put your shoes on and be ready to go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, verse 12, this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over to you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Further on down in the text, verses 21, Moses is instructed. Moses calls the elders of Israel to kill the lamb. Verse 22, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of the house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into, into your houses to smite you. So when the angel of death, the angel of the Lord comes through to enact this curse. When he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he passes over them. What a powerful image for us as Christians to know that when the Lord sees the blood of the lamb on the posts of our heart, he passes over us. He does not bring his judgment upon us. There's a great story of a father and a son who are watching a parade go by. And they had all sorts of colorful uh, balloons and floats and a marching band. And the marching band stopped right where they were watching and played a song. And the father commented to the son, son, look at how beautiful those red uniforms are for the marching band. 
And the son says, but wait, they're not red, they're white. And the father's like, no, son, they're, they're red. I can see as clear as day. And the son's like, no, they're white. So the father steps back from the window they're looking through, and he can't help notice that the son is looking through a red stained glass window. And when he looked at the red uniforms of the marching band through the red stained glass windows, they appeared to be white. What color is sin? We tend to think of our sins as a big black mark against us. But the prophet Isaiah says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What color is sin? Sin is scarlet. Sin is red. What color is blood? It is scarlet. It is red. When God the Father sees our scarlet sins through the scarlet blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he does not see them anymore. He forgives us. We are cleansed. But Elder Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve makes this very, very important observation here. Without the application of the blood to the doorposts, the sacrifice would have been in vain. It's not just enough to make the sacrifice. They had to put the blood on the doorposts. If you have not applied the atonement of Jesus Christ to your life, your church membership is in vain. Everything you've done is in vain, apart from the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to go to church. It's not enough to just do all the right things. You have to be a disciple of Christ. You have to be a follower of Christ. You have to have applied the atonement to your life in personal and powerful ways. And if you have not done that at any point in your life, I encourage you to do so. So the meal was to be eaten as a family, as a, uh, a household. And then in verse 15, let's see, verse 15 of chapter 12, the Lord institutes the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Feast of the Unleavened Bread would take place for another seven days. Verse 15, seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away the leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread shall be from the first day until the seventh day. That soul shall be cut off from Israel. Leavened was to be completely removed from the household. Today, as part of the Passover celebration, parents will hide little pieces of leavened bread throughout the home. And as a game, the children will go through it to make sure that all the leaven is gone. There's some spiritual significance to this. And there's just a way of reinforcing the idea that there was no time to use leaven in the house because this was to take this exodus was to happen quickly. Now, the verse 15 there says, if you do not, those that did not observe the Feast of the Unleavened Bread would be cut off from Israel. It does not mean that they would be excommunicated, but the idea is that they would cut themselves off by not participating. By refusing to participate in the feast, they are demonstrating that they are not really part of the covenant community. Now, there's some preaching we could do there, too. When we cut ourselves off from the sacrament, when we refuse to take the sacrament, we refuse to go to church, when we refuse to do the things we need to do, we, in a sense, are showing, are demonstrating that we are not part of the covenant community. Our name might be on the roll, but in fact, in function, we are not. We have cut ourselves off. And so that's the warning that the Lord gives us here. If you're not participating, you're going to be cut off, not by uh, other people, but by yourself and by your very action. Now, as we continue our discussion of the Passover, let's pause for a minute and, and talk about the Savior. Come follow me. He does a really good job at uh, pointing to some of the symbolism in the Passover of Jesus Christ. The lamb represents Jesus. The blood on the doorpost represents the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who saves us. Eating the lamb making the Savior part of our lives, and bitter herbs, the bitterness of captivity of sin. Uh, Elder uh, Garrett W. Gaughan once said, the angel of death passed by the houses marked with the symbolic blood of the lamb, 
that passing by or pass over represents Jesus Christ ultimately overcoming death. Indeed, the atoning blood of the Lamb of God gives our Good Shepherd power to gather his people in all places and circumstances into the safety of his fold on both sides of the veil. Elder Ulysses Suarez says, By voluntarily taking upon himself the sins of all mankind, being cruelly nailed to the cross and victoriously conquering death on the third day, Jesus gave a more sacred significance to the Passover ordinance than had been bestowed upon Israel in ancient times. In fulfillment of prophecy, he offered his own body and precious blood as the great and last sacrifice, validating the traditional symbols used in the celebration of the Lord's Passover. And that was from the April 2021 General Conference. Now, the modern-day celebration of Passover usually features the dinner called a Seder. And that Seder features many of the elements that we find in this text. They've added a few others. I don't have the time to get into all of that, but I wanted to point out a few things. They still have the lamb. They still have the matzah or the unleavened bread. They still have the bitter herbs, although now the bitter herbs have come to symbolize the bitterness of slavery. They also have five cups of wine that, that are used throughout the meal. These five cups of wine all represent different things, and four of the five are drunk at various points of the meal. This should be familiar to us. You'll remember the, the Last Supper. The Last Supper was actually instituted, communion sacrament was actually instituted during a Passover Seder. So when Jesus took the cup, he's taking one of the cups from the meal. And when he takes the bread, he's taking the unleavened bread. And he transforms that Seder meal into a sacrament for us. Now, four of the five cups are consumed during the course of the Passover Seder meal. One is not. The fifth cup is reserved for the prophet Elijah and hopes that he will visit during the Passover celebration. It represents future redemption, and it is left unconsumed. So to this day, Israel's Jewish people, sorry, uh, will have a fifth cup at a table, and that cup is reserved for the prophet Elijah, pointing to his return, which they believe will happen prior to the coming of the Messiah. Now, pause for a second. Was there a time in church history where Elijah returned to the earth? Yes. April 3rd, 1836, in the Kirtland Temple, the prophet Elijah returned and restored the sealing keys to the prophet Joseph Smith. Guess what was happening on April 3rd, 1836? It was during the celebration of Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So that fulfillment of that promise of the Elijah cup, Elijah did return during Passover and restored the keys, just as it prophesied for all those here. Now let's return back to the children of Israel. Back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 33. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they may send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we'd be all dead men. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. The Lord knew that Israel was going to need things to buy and trade so that they could have the provisions that they needed to go on their journey through the wilderness. And so that's, he gave them favor in the hearts of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were ready to get them out. So they're like, take, go and take this, just get out. Verse 37 of chapter 12. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. Now, that phrase, that word thousand, is an interesting one. What does that mean? So if there were 600,000 men on foot, then that meant there were well over a million Israelites, women and children. 
But the word translated thousand has a wide range of meanings. It can be translated thousand. It can be translated cattle. It can be translated tribe. So perhaps a better translation instead of the word thousand is tribes or households. So men from 600 different tribes or households or families were called to serve as fighting men or were not called to serve, but were qualified to serve as fighting men. That would put the total population of Israel around maybe 30,000, which makes a lot more sense in the context. So that's an option if you want to follow that. And then it says, verse 38, a mixed multitude went up also with them. Remember, one of the purposes of this according to God, was so that he might be glorified, so that other people might worship him. It wasn't just Israelites that left Egypt. Evidently, some Egyptians went with them, and maybe people from other nationalities. They all threw their lot in with the Lord. And so the Lord accomplished his purpose. All four purposes he accomplished. He showed his sovereignty. He was able to deliver Israel from bondage. He was able to redeem them from, from sin through the Passover, and he was able to uh, draw others to proselyte, if you will, others to follow him. And so they left, and they began their sojourn. Then we get to chapter uh, 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So the Lord institutes a new law. Every firstborn animal or every firstborn human belongs to God. What would happen is if it was a clean animal, as later described in the book of Leviticus, that animal would be sacrificed. If it was an unclean animal, it would either be killed or an animal would be sacrificed on its behalf. A clean animal would be sacrificed on its behalf. If it was a human, again, a sacrifice would take place. Why? So that people would know that the Lord is in charge. Everything ultimately belongs to him. Why the firstborn of, of man? Why kids? Why do they have to have a sacrifice? Verse 14 of chapter 13 tells us, And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, What is this that thou shalt say, By the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage? And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. So they're off. Verse 17 of chapter 13 says, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest preadventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. God did not think the Israelites were battle, ready for battle yet, so he took them the long way around. And because of their sin, it became the really long way around. Verse 19, they took the bones of Joseph with them. Joseph had been mummified, and Joseph had given instruction that he wanted to be buried with his father, Jacob. And this, this theme of being gathered to one's father, being, being buried in the promised land, was a very prevalent theme in the Old Testament. Even in our own church history, we have stories of pioneers who wanted to be buried in Zion, the idea of being with the people of God and uh, um, in the promised land. And it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. And he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. According to Dr. Stewart, it is clear that there was one cloud-like pillar which represented God's presence. 
and that it appeared as a great column of dark cloud when viewed during the bright sunlit day, but as a column of fire when viewed at night. This is consistent with the descriptions of the cloud that covered the top of Mount Sinai as described in Exodus 24, 15 through 18. Such a cloud would seem welcoming and comforting during the day in the hot wilderness of Egypt, and that by night a fire would seem the same, providing light to see by and perhaps some warmth, as well as a terrifying barrier if it were positioned between Israelites and a potential enemy. The pillar cloud was a manifestation of Yahweh himself, not merely something he sent them. And now we're off on the Exodus, and uh, Brother Sam Castor will be along to describe the rest of the story, if you will, or the next section of the story. Thank you for joining with us today. And I just want to bear my testimony that I know that Jesus is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And that he suffered and died so that we might have eternal life. And that if we place our faith and trust in him, and we apply the atonement to our lives, then we can be assured of forgiveness of our sins. And we can have a relationship with him that will never end. And I just want to say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thousands of people are baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every week. In many ways, Brian Reddy's story is no different than any other convert except that Brian was an ordained Southern Baptist pastor with a formal theological education. He firmly believed that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. In 1979, Brian and his mother were driving home from a fireside featuring members of the Osmond family. He had listened to their testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and was impressed. He turned to his mother and said, Mom, I want to be a Mormon. Her answer was a firm and adamant no. Over the next 35 years, Brian became a committed follower of Jesus Christ and a staunch anti-Mormon. But then things changed. His heart began to soften as he opened his mind to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. His faith would face the ultimate test of conviction to quit his ministry and seek baptism. Crossing the Divide from Baptist to Latter-day Saint. Written by Brian Reedy. Find it at cedarfort.com.